Let's have a word of prayer one more time. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this eternal gospel, uh, which was started before the world was even created. And uh, when we think about seeing these things from your perspective, it really broadens our perspective way beyond the little trials and troubles that we have and the doubts and uncertainties and all of those things can be swallowed up in your sovereignty. We thank you for that. I pray that that would be true this morning as we uh, begin this um, very well-known, very comforting, very powerful uh, chapter in John's Gospel. Um, help us to see it as closer to, maybe is a better way of saying it, to what the audience that was there heard and the way that they heard it, rather than maybe the perspectives we've had on it. Um, not that those are wrong, but that there's a lot more here, perhaps, that we can miss. And uh, I've been struck with that as I go through it. And so I thank you uh, for your word, which never ceases to to provide fresh insights and new treasures and things that um, come from the infinite mind of God. I pray for for all of us, uh, where our hearts are this morning, um, perhaps we're in a, in a joyful place, perhaps a sad place, perhaps uh, um, we can think of other things we'd rather do than be here, but you, you call us as your people to come and to sit at your feet. And I pray that by your spirit, you would open your word your Sunday school this morning during the service and this afternoon or this evening as we gather by your Holy Spirit. And as Eric said, help us have ears to hear and feet that are, are quick to follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Where's Rick? He said he was going to always make comments, but Rick, particularly, I thought of when, when I was getting these notes together because he's been very anxious for us to finally get to chapter 14. <laughs> and the Lord hasn't returned yet, so that's uh, we're here. Um, okay. Uh, this is the second of the five chapters known as the Upper Room Discourse. Arguably, chapter 17... I argue with myself as to whether that should be included. I think it. I think it is. I think it's fair to do that. And I, I, and I think the reason is is that remember that you get the four chapters, thirteen through sixteen, that are picturing or showing Jesus in the role of prophet. Right. He is standing, as it were, with his back to God the Father, and his face to the audience, and he's telling them what God the Father is doing, what he and the Father are doing. And then in chapter 17, he steps out of the role of prophet into the role of priest, right? And he turns his back to them, and he speaks to God about them and about those who will believe on him through their testimony. And then in chapter 18, we see him as the king, right? He's on trial. And it's going to be fun when we get there because you'll see the political intrigue as as Pilate and the religious leaders try to maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly, try to manipulate one another and, and get uh, an outcome. And, the, and Jesus is that sort of political football between them 
And the charge that they bring, at least initially, is that he, he claims to be king, right? But unwittingly, uh, prophet, priest, and king, right? Those, those three main roles right here. So we continue now. This is the second chapter of the Upper Room Discourse. We've looked at um, a timeline. Uh, remember that when the disciples came in, uh, actually just, what, maybe three, well, four, depending on how you want to count it, roughly four days earlier was what is popularly called the triumphal entry. I like to call it presentation of the king, where um, he was welcomed into the city um, and by an exuberant crowd. He cleansed the temple. And a big chunk of a, I'm going through uh, Luke in my personal quiet times, and something like chapter 9 through roughly about halfway through 9 and all the way into 19 of Luke's, that's a big chunk of Luke's gospel, is, is devoted to Jesus's sort of final journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And when you when you begin to read the other gospels, we're in Mark, right, in the evenings, you'll see the same pattern again and again, where it's like the first two-ish years of his ministry are kind of quick. You go through that quickly. And then it really slows down. And there's a lot of content in the Gospels uh, right there in the last week just before he uh, goes to the cross. And so, anyway, the crowds are exuberant. The disciples come into the upper room. Thrilled, right? Because the kingdom is coming. They're convinced of that. And there's there's millions of uh, Jews probably uh, a million, maybe several, in, in town, and a, a lot of them are excited, and, and even the other Gospels will tell you, you know, even though he was in the temple teaching for several days after, right, after riding in and cleansing the temple, uh, the religious leaders tried to trap him. Many groups came, right? He, he put all of them in their place and embarrassed them. They didn't arrest him because of the fear of the crowds, right? And he was very popular. So disciples are thinking for sure the kingdom's coming now. Right. As soon as this, maybe maybe after Passover, we don't know exactly. But and so Luke tells us that they come into the upper room uh, and they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Right? They're up here. Jesus is down here. Right? And he's on his way. Paul has given us this insight that he's on his way down, down, down in this humbling process. They're elevating themselves, and he's going down. And and that kind of all comes to a head with with the foot washing right and uh, apparently i think right after luke says that he rebuked them for you know for acting like the gentiles do and trying to jockey for position and and lord you know leaders more over other leaders uh i'm among you as one who serves right and he gets up and washes their feet this throws a lot of cold water on on them and 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 uh <clears throat> When you put together all of the things that we're going to see in our notes here, I actually bullet pointed it on the second page there. All the sort of, it's almost like Jesus has hit them with one punch, another punch, a third punch, a fourth punch, right? And that gut punch comes in verse 33 of 13, where they hear these words, as I told the Jews, I'm telling you, I'm going away, where I'm going, you cannot come, <clears throat> right? And that's like, one, two, three, and then this uppercut that just really devastates them. Okay. So as we enter into chapter 14, actually backing up to verse 36 is kind of where uh, of the previous chapter, that's kind of where all this 
next section starts. We've looked at that last time, verses 36 through 38, so I won't dwell on that. But all of that background is important to keep in mind when you read the first verse, do not let or let not your hearts be troubled. We we read that and it's sort of two thousand years later, and we read it in our text in Sunday school. We're feeling good. We got some coffee and everything. You know, we sort of just read past that. And there's a lot of pathos in that. They they are really upset, really upset. In fact, Jesus has to tell them twice: once at the beginning, and then again at the end of that chapter, the exact same verse. Okay, so that's a little context for us. So let's get into our. Everybody have notes. Thank you. 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 Dialogue. Jesus is entering into a dialogue with four of the disciples, okay? And they're, and they're representative of what all of them are thinking, okay? In fact, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but it seems to be one member from each of the, the four groups, depending on how you want to, to divide it, the 12, okay? But um, we even hear from Judas, not Iscariot, okay? Um, so... As Peter seems to be one starts this whole this whole thing. Did did Peter later understand, even though here now is confused? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's read what he says and opening his first epistle. <coughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which had a huge impact. On them, right, and turning around this despair that they're entering into to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. You like that description? Yeah. yeah thank you very much. And look at this, but I, I but I underlined here. I want to draw attention to what reserved in heaven for you. Okay. Some translations that I looked at, uh, NIV, ESV, say kept in heaven. I like that uh, NASB. Reserved, I like that. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The same power of God that is preserving your reservation in heaven is also protecting you here on earth. That's good, isn't it? Yes. And God has to do that, right? I mean, what good is it for him if Jesus is going to tell his disciples here, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, right? What good is it for him to go away and prepare a place for them, and then they not ever arrive there, right? They're destroyed somewhere along the way, maybe in this life or afterwards or something, right? So God is on both ends. He's not only reserving your inheritance in heaven, he's preserving you now. That's an important point because they get confused about, well, how are we going to get there? And his point is, it's not about you. I am the way, right? You're already on the way. I'm keeping you. I'm preserving you. I've chosen you. And he's going to make that clear in the coming chapters. So Peter, got he got the message for sure. <clears throat> All right, I put down here, 
uh, a reappearance of our of our table. I, I call this sort of a roadmap of the seven I am metaphors. Um, you've heard the I am statement, right, of John. Seven I am statements. The problem is there are other I am statements. Okay, John eight fifty eight is, is the most famous of the non metaphor. Uh, you know where, where Abraham was. I am okay. There's a lot. In fact, uh, I referenced the notes. There's, it's actually a link. Um, you have a show up. Yeah. Okay. So if you have a colored copy, you'll see in the second page that blue. Um, I have notes where 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 we looked at every single one of those occurrences. But these seven particularly stand like you know seven mountain peaks in a in a range of maybe smaller hills. Um, they're they're I'll say it that way because they're all they're all significant statements. But uh, but these are I call them metaphors because he's he's what he's doing is he's filling in the blank you might say with that name of God that comes from Exodus three fourteen right I am. And what I am that I am. Do you hear the sort of almost suspended mystery that's there? Well, what are you exactly, right? Well, Jesus comes and he fulfills that. He fills that blank in. He fills it in with a number of metaphors: the shepherd and the door and the bread and 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 uh, the light of the world. And you can see all of those listed out there in that. Um, so I've just marked where we are. We're at number six of those seven. There, with me, everybody. If I lose you, please speak up. All right, so let's read this. We now enter one of the most beloved passages of the entire Gospel of John. This passage, passage of Scripture, has brought comfort to believers throughout church history. It has been read at the bedsides of dying people and at gravesides as a salve for the grieving souls gathered there. To the ears of most people, these words from the mouth of the Son of God bring a sense of calm and ease and ease the fear of death as they try to imagine the dwellings on the other side of the grave that he refers to. Many songs have been written and sermons preached about this place where God dwells and where we finally see the end of suffering, pain, injustice, and death as we know it from this life. What I'm trying to get at here is that a lot of times, you know, when we read scripture, we we bring, um, I don't want to say baggage, but we sometimes it can be baggage. Sometimes it can be extra learning, which is good. It's not a bad thing. But we're 2,000 years from that, right? And uh, uh, there's a popular trend in the church now, which is saying, well, we, what we need to do is we sort of need to update the Bible. We need to sort of make it relevant to fit culture today. Uh, that's wrong. What, what we need to do is put ourselves back in to the shoes, the sandals of the people who were hearing it at the time and understand that. And then out of once we understand that, then we can make application. Okay. So that's what we want to do here. Uh, and, and I guess what I'm, what I'm wrestling against in my own thinking as well as maybe yours, but one of words in your mouth. But uh, the, this text is so familiar, you know. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to way to prepare a place for you. My Father's house. Make, all, right as I say that, you, you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking with that. So I've heard, I've heard this many times. We need to hear it with fresh ears. 
you need to go back and hear it the way they heard it and understand it the way they understood it. Not that our, our understanding is wrong necessarily, it's just that that's what I'm trying to help us to do. Um, because there's a lot more here, especially from a Jewish Old Testament perspective, that we miss if we don't. Okay. So let's read the next paragraph there. Our familiarity with these words can lead us uh, to become so accustomed to hearing and even quoting them that we forget the impact that these words had on the original audience. That small band of disciples gathered with Jesus in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed. In this study, we want to examine the passage not just as words of comfort to, to say to people feeling the sting of death, but as they as they were heard in their original setting by the Jewish ears that had just heard the, the worst words they could imagine coming from the lips of their Lord, their teacher and Lord. Right? I mean, he literally, just before these verses and verse, as we open this chapter, tells Peter for the first time, and remember, the rest of them are listening, right? Will you really die for me? Before this night is over, you're going to deny you know me three times. Peter shuts up. He doesn't speak anymore. It's the rest of them that start speaking. That's point out. Must have just, just like blown, just put more salt in the moons, right? They, they, this is not at all what they were expecting to hear in this upper room. As we start this chapter, the disciples are very upset emotionally. We see this reflected in Jesus's words repeated twice to stop letting their hearts be troubled. That's the better translation, by the way. Stop letting their hearts be troubled. This word translated troubled in most English Bibles appears more times in John than all of the other Gospels combined. When we, when we study that, I'm really excited about that because it's actually used in John several times of Jesus. What he's doing is he's saying effectively, put your trouble on me. I'm going to bear that trouble. Really something, really, really great truth. It is also translated throughout the New Testament as terrified, stirred up, uh, disturbed, and agitated. The second person pronouns Jesus uses change from singular when talking to Peter in chapter 13, verses 36 and 38, to plural in 14, 1 through 4. If you have a, a King James, it, you'll see that change there where it actually says uh, ye instead of just you. He's no longer, so in other words, in, in chapter 14, he stops talking just to Peter and he's talking to all of them, right? And you can see that too, uh, that some translations say, let your heart singular be troubled. ESV has, let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, trying to hint to us that it is a plural, right? That Jesus is talking to the whole group now, not just Peter. All right, so <clears throat> what I'm trying to do here in the next, these two paragraphs is last week when we when I started kind of hinting at what was coming a little bit, giving us a few, um, my wife uh, said, well, how do we know that they were upset, right? And that's a great question. That's, that's very good because we don't want to just make stuff up, right? We want to read in the text what's there. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to drive at here is not only does Jesus say that directly, right? And he uses a very strong word uh, 
twice or phrase actually in this chapter, not letting your hearts be disturbed and agitated and terrified. Okay. Um, but then the second, look at that next paragraph there. We see these strong emotions also evidenced by the many different disciples that interject throughout this chapter, several of whom we rarely hear from. First of all, we hear from, from Peter, even though it's a few verses before the chapter. He's one that, kind of, like I said, starts this whole dialogue with Jesus, okay? Um, so we heard, we heard, we've heard from Peter now, right? <clears throat> then next we're going to hear from Thomas, and then Philip, and then Judas, not Iscariot. As far as I can tell, this is the only place he speaks up in the Gospels. Am I right about that? Okay, I, I think I think that's correct. He's also listed, by the way, under those two other names that I give you there. All these clues point to the boisterous reaction they had to hearing all that Jesus had been telling them up to this point as he deconstructed their belief in him as the triumphalistic Messiah. Remember, they thought he was going to establish the earthly kingdom and come down to do that. And there's all this excitement and support out there, popular support. Leaders, can, uh, all leaders have been trying for days to discredit him in the eyes of the Romans and the populace, right? And, and they failed. And not only that, they've discredited themselves. He's turned it on mm -hmm. them in a, a brilliant, re, you know, return on, on all of their supposed, you know, stump the teacher questions, right? And, um, <clears throat> And so the disciples are like, wow, yeah, this is great. Um, but he's been deconstructing and tearing that down. And, and, and in its place now, and that's why you hear that, that positive turn in this chapter, he's going to start building the truth. In place of what they thought was the truth, he's going to actually help with the truth. And he's, it's kind of almost like what Paul says about how to, how we destroy speculations and thoughts, right? Um, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, right? Bearing down on problems. And, and, and we, we tear down imaginations and every vain thought. Um, and, and we don't just tear them down, but what do we do in this place? Build up the truth, right? You, 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 it's what the word of God is for, so build up to replace what you misunderstood before with the truth, you know, to gradually dim the darkness in, as you turn up the light. Well, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing now. So from this point forward, chapter 14, 15, and 16, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to, to not only just you know, offer them words of comfort for emotional, but he's going to give them a solid foundation of truth that they can know these things in advance so that as they ride out, not, not just the next few hours, but days and even years of coming persecution for their testimony, they'll have a stable, rock-solid faith that will hold them through the ups and downs of the years ahead. Does that make sense? Very important. So how do we know that they were, you know, I, I mentioned last time, <clears throat> I almost, when we read the opening verses here, let not your hearts be troubled. I don't know what you picture in your mind, you know, but I think, I think personally, and this is just me, okay, but I think given the emotional state of the room, I think Jesus had to talk up a little bit. Wasn't shouting, but I think he had to speak up a little bit. It wasn't just the quiet. They weren't all sitting there placidly listening, you know, like 
many of you are this morning, you know, yeah. slaves, knives. And, and knives. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was, uh, especially after, I think it was already whispered conversations, you know, this kind of thing going on. And, and the reason I say that is you, you hear that not only in the number of different disciples speaking up, but also in what they say. So Thomas, for example, says, we don't know where you're going. So how did he know that? How did he know what everybody else was thinking? Because they were all conversing, right? And, and, and he's been like that in a room where there's, there's these conversations going on and people are, you know, somebody's trying to speak, but there's this side conversations and things happening. And that person has to talk up a little bit to get the point across, right? So I think that's what's happened. That's why he's the word boisterous there. Um, that this isn't a, he's not placidly, he maybe even had to stand up. You know, or get on his knees and recline at the table, you know, uh, or stand up or something and, and say, guys, 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 let not your hearts be troubled. Right? Stop. Stop. Right. Thank you. Stop letting your hearts be troubled because they already were. <coughs> in the center of this passage is perhaps the second most quoted verse in John's gospel behind John 3.16. John 14.6. Right, has been put on so many t-shirts, including our BBS shirts, right? <laughs> Posters, memes, etc., that most Christians who've been around for a while can quote it from memory, even if they don't recognize the reference. Yet in the context of John 7 I am metaphors, it takes on renewed significance as we see in the light of the parenthetical study. And by the way, you can go online. Um, to the church website, go to resources, and um, you can find this study, these notes, and it's all out there, okay? So that parenthetical study that we did, we took some time to unpack Exodus 3.14 and, and the origins of that, of that uh, name that God gave himself at the commission of Moses' burning bush, right? Remember that? All right, so we did... Uh, <clears throat> um, we, we, we did that study um, on the meaning of that special covenant name of God, I am. We learned that Jesus used this special reference to the name of God from Exodus 3.14 to show himself to be equal to the God of Israel and also to be the fulfillment of the implied question we might ask of God after hearing this name, you are what, right? Of all the I am statements of Jesus, these seven metaphors are the crown jewels of the fourth gospel and supply answers to that question, showing Jesus to be the revelation of all that God wants us to know about himself. It's pretty cool. This sixth I am metaphor, the one we're looking at here and that we're going to see in verse uh, six. Okay. This sixth I am metaphor stands alone among the others in that is a cluster of three fulfillments of this covenant name of God that intertwine together in Jesus and master, masterfully summarize all that he is and his mission to bring many sons to glory. Okay, I should say all that he is in terms of that mission, this particularly this first mission. See, this, is, this is the missing ingredient that the disciples didn't understand. They thought he was here to fulfill all of those triumphalistic prophecies. What they didn't know, and it's not 
because they're just stupid. It's just that the whole system was geared toward presenting the Messiah as this triumphalistic Messiah who is going to come and conquer the Romans and, and take the throne of David and, and establish, uh, after after destroying God's enemies, establish the kingdom and every man will sit under his, his own vine, right? And there'd be peace finally, you know, not only with the nations around them, but peace with nature, right? All of this. What they didn't, uh, uh, what they failed, not just the disciples, but the whole system, the teachers of that system, failed to recognize was that God, before, before he can populate his kingdom with uh, all, all of these people, okay, he's got to get them ready, right? Uh, and I, lo I love that little phrase in, in um, coming up on Christmas, and uh, I always think about that um, away in the manger, it says, and fit us for heaven to live with you there. We're not fit normally. Mm. Natural when we're first born. Right? And the disciples understand that the Jews thought they were. Nicodemus did back in chapter three, right? And Jesus says, "No, no, you're not. You're not okay by just the way you are. You need a new lineage. You need to be born again, right? You need something happen to you because um, there's a problem with you, not just the Romans." Right? Uh, so that's the missing ingredient here for them to understand is that He is coming as the Savior, right? As the Savior, He is the way to the Father. To be reconciled back to the Father. That was the that was the worst problem the Jews had. They didn't know that. They thought that they were good with God, and the worst problem they had was the Romans. Right? Jesus tells them exactly the opposite. The man behind your curtain is not God; it's the devil. And you need your your greatest enemy is not the Romans, but God Himself. Right? And that's true with us. So the sixth metaphor stands alone among the others. It has this. It, it's three. Um, uh, fulfillments intertwined together. Um, <clears throat> so far in the upper room, he has been making shocking and confusing uh, statements to his frightened, frightful group of loyal disciples. That, okay. So here, here I'm enumerating the four punches, okay, so to speak. Uh, the first three are they're staggering, and then by the that, that fourth one there, I think with Actually, verse thirty-three is the third bullet there, uh, and it's just it just gets worse and worse as as, as they go along, and then they hear that Peter is is going to betray him. So, what do we? Here's what they know. All right. So again, we want to fast forward. You know, we kind of know how all this is going to end up, and so oh yeah, it's not too good. Forget you know all that, right? You put yourself in their shoes, their sandals, as they're hearing this. They've they've already heard. First of all. Jesus becomes very troubled, same word, by the way, okay, <clears throat> when when he gets to that point in the upper room, just after washing their feet, actually, he started before to tell them, one of you is going to betray me, right, and then this whole argument breaks out, he has to deal with their pride, does the foot washing, and then he comes back to that point again, and John tells us, uses, again, that same word that he says here, don't let your hearts be troubled, he uses that of Jesus, he says, Jesus became very troubled, and he he says, visibly, maybe crying. I don't know. But they saw him very agitated, just like they are feeling now, and say, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, is it I? Is it I? Right? And, and it's not just, you know, maybe some casual disciple sitting back. It's one of the intimate 12. 
right? And they don't know yet who that is, right? John tells us here, again, see, we want to fast forward and say, oh, well, that's Judas. Why were they so good? They don't know that, right? John told us that Judas had been dismissed, but some of them thought, well, maybe he ha has the money bag, right? So maybe he's going to buy something that we need or he's going to give something to the poor. Remember that? Right? So John is helping us when he tells you that. He's trying to help you uh, enter into the mindset that they were in when they heard it. So they don't know which one of their trusted inner circle is going to betray him. Secondly, um, <clears throat> instead of the conquering king they were taught to expect, he's among them as the lowest slave. I'm among you as one who serves. And then he gets up and takes the place of that lowest slave, right? Uh, that, that cleans the toilets and does all the nasty work nobody else wants to do. And just blown away by that. This doesn't make sense. The conquering king we were told to expect. What's he doing washing our feet? So I think Peter was so offended. Third point there. He is soon to leave them and can't follow. That's verse 33. And, and they can't follow. Even acquainted, uh, equating them with his enemies in that statement. Perhaps leaving them to wonder if they too were to be left out of the kingdom of heaven. Right? And so we, we've already seen where Jesus, uh, Peter just can't keep his mouth shut after that. Right? And is verse 33, Jesus tells them that, and then 34 and 35, he says, you know, as I've loved you, love one another, right? And, and, and that's just, Peter just, and the rest of the disciples don't even hear that. Really. Uh, there, there's, Peter just can't stand anymore, and it's like, what do you mean? You know? And then Jesus, thankfully, begins to give them some hope, right? Uh, and says, well, you can't come now, but you will come later. All right? But still, that, that they're, again, they don't know what we know. We know how all this pans out, but they don't know that yet. Uh, and so their minds are just reeling with, what is going on? What are you saying? This, this makes no sense. We know you're the Messiah. Why, why aren't you taking the throne? What are you talking about? Right. So then the final and fourth punch here, uh, we looked at last time, the last set of notes, <clears throat> right there at the tail end of chapter 13. Uh, they are all, of, actually, John doesn't tell us this, but the other Gospels fill in that blank a little bit. And it seems to be later on, it's not clear to me exactly when he announces that they will all abandon him, but he does tell them that, okay? And so I'm not sure if by this point they know that, but Peter is going to deny him. And um, the rest are wondering, you know, well, we already know someone's been betraying. Is it Peter? Is it me? See what I'm saying? So I feel safe in saying that the word is out that a number of the disciples, the core inner disciples, are going to be abandoned. Okay. So you cannot get a sense of the confusion and the emotional. I mean, they've had ice water poured on their rather hot expectations for where this was going. When they, does that make sense? Everybody with me? Okay. I keep belaboring that point because it's hard to undermine our thinking of what, when we read this text. I'm trying to put us there with them. What they, what they didn't understand, even if they did know it, and they did know it because Jesus had told them, was that God the Father and God the Son were already, uh, had already secured them on this road to heaven. 
in the prior chapter, Jesus had told them that they were already clean, except for Judas. Okay, so so in those statements, he makes uh, there in, early in chapter thirteen, and in the coming chapter, this fifteen, he will refer back to the same idea of being washed by the water of God's word for salvation by linking them with the fruitful branches that the Father, quote-unquote, cleans or prunes. Most translations say prune. The, uh, the new um, Legacy Standard Bible says cleans, which is probably the better, well, it is the better translation. It means, this, it means that, okay? Although prunes is not a bad translation. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we get there. So the Father cleans so that they bear more fruit, right? So unlike the unfruitful branches, which he's going to talk about in chapter 15, that are cut off and thrown into the fire, they are the fruitful branches that have already been cleaned and will continue. The Father will continue to use the word to clean them and to prune them so that they bear more fruit, okay? there. In other words, whether you guys know it or not, you're already on the road. Right? You're already on the road. You're already on the road. And you didn't put yourself there. And you don't have to hold yourself there. That's true. Isn't that good? That's good. Why? Because I am the way. Right? I'm holding you. I've got you. All right. So unlike the fruitless branches, which are cut off by God's word, eventually thrown to the fire, these men <coughs> were already, <laughs> already part of God's elect family. Jesus will go on to tell them plainly that they were chosen by him to be called out of the world system. Okay. And, and I put those verses down. They can't get any clearer, by the way, for, for people who say, well, you know, they struggle with whether God is sovereign in salvation or not. How clear is how clear is uh is is chapter 15, verse 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Uh, is that clear? Anybody struggle with that? Okay. I mean, that the sovereignty of God and salvation has been all over this book. And I put a few samples down there, right? Um, way back to chapter one, when he's introducing the book, he says, Who are born not of the will of man, right? But of God. And then in chapter six, chapter six is one of the major proof texts in the New Testament for this doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. Where he says again and again, you know, all the Father's given me will come to me, right? <clears throat> um, no one can come to me unless what? Unless they're convinced against their will. No. Compelled. In effect, not only not only is it important just because you need to know the truth. It glorifies God. Well, it glorifies God, but it also is the ground of our peace. And that's going to that's going to become clear as we get into the next chapter, because he's going to, well, actually the end of this chapter, where he tells them again, you know, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Right before that, he talks about peace. What's that peace? What's the ground of the peace that I, that I leave you? Well, that I've, that I've got it. That, that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working this out. And they've chosen to set their love upon you. And there's nothing you can do about that. Any comfort sent by telling he's going to send them a comfort. That's right. You know, and he's one like himself. That's what I like about it, because he said it's one like myself. 
You know, that's amazing because that's a lot. And get this. Not only is God in charge of getting each believer, first of all, have their inheritance reserved in heaven, okay, and preserved there. And then not only that, but he's preserving you now, right? So even though you haven't arrived there yet, God, who is the same God who is sovereign in calling those people that he has called from eternity past and set something in eternity future for them, is the same God of the present now, so that in every single one of our lives, again, this is why I say this is the ground of our peace, whatever happens to you is in God's plan. And is it's, there's no random, you know, surprise or anything that's outside of his. He didn't just, I like to say it this way, he didn't just know what you're going through. He's ordained it. That's right. He's ordained. He has chosen. The writer of Hebrews says, "Let us run the race." What set before you, marked out for you. And, and I just read a, uh, this past week. I read a great devotional about that that said, "So stop comparing yourself to somebody else's race." Right? You see somebody else. Whoop, you know, we got missionaries here, right? Whoa, missionaries. Whoa, uh, not worthy. <laughs> That's their race. Maybe Kenya's not where God's called you, but he has called you to something, right? And he has a race marked out for you and talents for you and situations for you. And he will be there every inch of the ups and downs, the mountains and the valleys of the way, the road to heaven that you're walking on. But can we make decisions that mess it up? No. Because I've been reading in Jeremiah where God told people, if you do this, I will preserve you. And if you, like, he told them that uh, they needed to submit to the Chaldeans and Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking over them. And if they would submit and let King Nebuchadnezzar capture them, he would preserve them. But if he didn't, then they would all be slaughtered. So it looks like there's a point where if you are following what God wants, You'll be blessed, but if you don't, there are consequences. So how do you explain that? All right. So first, first of all, you have to look at the audience that's that Jeremiah is talking to. He's not talking to the church now, he's talking to the nation then. Secondly, God reveals explicitly there clearly what the nation now, not individuals, but the nation is supposed to do in that strategy, right? <clears throat> um, and, and by the way. That does answer the question, too. Does God know what would have happened if something else had happened? Yes, he does. And there's a lot of text of scripture to support that. But as Paul wrestles with that in Romans chapter 2, where he, chapter 2 and then in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he has to deal with that problem of, of well, so God, remember that the first covenant that God, <clears throat> the Mosaic covenant that God entered into with his people was conditioned. Okay? It's the only covenant that's bilateral, that has agreements. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you do that, if you don't think of me, I'll curse you. Right. Um, so Paul deals with that in Romans, where in the new covenant, it's unilateral. It's completely up to God. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant is also unilateral. But God has promised for his people to call them, preserve them, to do the work 
right? He has given us his moral will here, where he does say, okay, uh, there are consequences in this life for disobeying, right? So if you if you disobey, uh, for example, um, the command, this is, I see a lot of Christians doing this, it bothers me, um, to not forsake the assembly of yourselves together, right? That you can do that, and if you're in Christ, you'll make it to heaven, but you will struggle a lot in this life. And there will be a lot of disobedience to the commands, all those commands to love one another, forgive one another, you know, serve one another, all those commands, those one another's, you'll have to give an account to that. Uh, that the Lord. So there, it's not to say that there aren't, that we're just free to live however we want and it'll be okay. There are consequences, but when, remember that Jesus died to save us from eternal wrath, not temple wrath. Right? So even though God is able, as we just read from Peter, to preserve you in this life, just like he's preserving your inheritance in heaven on both ends, that doesn't mean that this life won't have some pain that in so many times is brought on by our own sinful or foolish decisions. And, and by the way, too, sometimes it's not you, right? Sometimes, in fact, all of us, I think, in this room, have those that are close to us that we shared the gospel with. They've said, no, thank you. Gave God the finger to, to live life on their terms rather than his, right? And you feel that pain, right? And that's not necessarily your fault or your uh, consequences of, of things you did wrong, necessarily. I mean, it may be, but it may not be. <clears throat> but what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28, uh, and other texts, is that even those painful times are part of God's plan to prepare you for what is next in this life and for the glory to come. Does that make sense? It so he's like some people get a better hand dealt to them than others. Preacher Grace was talking about that. You know, you just got to do the best you can with the hand God's dealt you. I, there is a sense in which you have to be faithful. Yes, mm -hmm. right. And and like I said, mm -hmm. from our Hebrews, each each of us have a race to run. It's marked out for us, and each of us will give an account of what himself, not others. We, we love to do that, right? We love to look around. Well, let me tell you about Dad's ministry. Let me criticize. <laughs> there is a sense in which you can go on. If you see somebody in sin, that's God's will for them, right? You can confront them. But but as far as running the race, you have your own race to run, right? And and comparing yourself to other people, it's not it's not wholesome. You know, uh, Paul says that reserve judgment for the time uh, when God will bring to light what the hidden motives of the heart. Because there's a lot of things going on in people's lives, even though you may look around and say, well, nobody is suffering like I am. That's not true. You don't know that. You don't know what people are going through or now, what they've been through, what they're going through, or what they're going to go through in the past. We aren't told to look around and, you know, just run the race, fixing your eyes who? On who? On Jesus. Looking to him. Right? Does that make sense? Almost the whole Bible is filled with command to the Lord to tell us what to do and how to do. And the consequences of that failure are real. And yet at the same time it will not frustrate God's purpose. That's right. It cannot. You know what you you know what you end up doing when you don't live like that? 
um, is is robbing yourself of the joy and peace that God wants to give you. Because the joy and the peace, the joy, we're going to talk about that when we get to joy. I'm really looking forward to, to that. Because the joy that believers have is not happiness. It's not to be confused. Okay. Um, happiness is based on circumstances. Happenstance. In fact, the words mean this, they come from the same root. Happenstance and, and happiness. Okay. Um, so so I like to say, you know, we're going to put it down, but we'll put it in the notes down. Um, that happiness is taking pleasure, and you've heard me say this, pleasure in happenstance or in circumstances. Okay? Joy is taking pleasure in the Lord of happenstance. And he doesn't change. So if, so if my if my emotional well-being or just my well-being in life in general is dependent on what's happening to me and around me and in me and everything, what's gonna what what's that gonna look like? A roller coaster, right? And, and that's we'll deal with it more when we get there. It's not that it's not that circumstances don't affect you emotionally, they affected Jesus too, right? But it's that you you what you do in that, especially in those hard moments, is you cast yourself back like he did to the sovereignty of God. Even if I don't understand fully why I'm going through this and what's happening, I know that there's a sovereign God in charge of this. And not only does he know it, but he's ordained it and he's he's in charge of it. And he has promised that it will work out for good to those who love God and call according to his purpose. So I have to be sure I'm one of those who love God and call according to his purpose, right? That's that's the best of my ability, as Paul says, examine yourself, be sure you're in the faith, right? So if I'm in the faith and I'm growing in that understanding, and, and I, my own personal experience has been oftentimes that that going through those hard times, those tests and trials, squeeze you to show you what's really inside, right? That's right. So that you don't just, you know, and, and, and James says, count it all joy because it's the testing of your faith, Right? It's showing you that your faith is genuine. You know, I made it through this trial, and the, I faltered along the way, but the Lord sustained me, and I'm coming through, and I'm still trusting in Him. Right? I didn't just fall away. I'm not one of those unfruitful branches that's cut off and never coming back. Yep. The, the this is the the horror of the prosperity gospel. Substitute a loving heavenly Father. Or a heavenly Santa Claus that lets us eat what we want and get what we want and look like we want. And if I don't get everything the way I want it, then you know I'm mad. Heavenly Father is, you know, just like a human father does imperfectly. You know, we we stress our kids and we discipline our kids and we challenge our kids and we. Don't give them what they want. We give them what they need. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, Romans 8, 28. It's not all good things. It's everything. Mm -hmm. and the prosperity gospel is such a shallow. Yes. Good word. Um, good word. Or plastic. Because it takes... The reality of a loving heavenly father and substitutes it for this, you know, trinkets, trifles. Well, it has no, it has no answers for those times when you run into cancer or you run into uh, unsaved children or you run into 
um, job loss or fracture bank because the problem is you didn't have that. Yeah. It blames you. Blames you. Yeah. That's a great point. All right. I think we're about done, right? Let's finish this paragraph here and we'll wrap it In effect, Jesus is telling them 14.6 that they are, are already on the way to heaven. That knowing and following him, hearing his call as his sheep, marks them as those chosen and blessed by the Father to be led by the Holy Spirit safely through faith in Jesus Christ down the road of the cross to the final completion of God's grand plan of redemption as glorified saints in his eternal kingdom. It's a long sentence. Mm -hmm. Trying to get it all in there. Right, like Paul. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've been in Ephesians here lately. Yeah. <laughs> longest verse in the Bible. Yeah. Or longest sentence. Yeah. Jesus is the complete package. The all-sufficient one. Who will redeem them. Uh, who will hold, sorry. Who will hold them fast. And see that the work of redemption is completed in each one of them. He will accomplish perfect righteousness, complete atonement, and provide the new heart provided, promised in the new covenant. By the way, look up those verses in your own time again. Just remind yourself you know what they are. Just It's really, really good to read those in the Old Testament about that new covenant. That's what Jeremiah is getting at there in verse chapter 31. And then Ezekiel talks about taking out that heart of stone and putting the heart of flesh. Great stuff. Um so uh, it provides the new heart promise in the new covenant to all who hear his call and surrender to him in faith. This is the mystery of the first coming of the Messiah. He must be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and other Old Testament passages to save his people from the consequences of their sin before holy God. Only then can he return as a triumphal, triumphant king of kings to fulfill the rest of Messianic promises. Right, you can't have a kingdom without subjects, and the kingdom of heaven cannot be populated by anybody in their natural state. Jesus must take care of that problem first before he comes to set up that kingdom. And you can't have a kingdom without a kingdom, right? Right, so he's got to be resurrected. Right. All right. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths this morning. Thank you for the honesty of the questions and the discussion. And, um, this is raw. This is where we live. And, and uh, this is the, the truth. But it's I'm so thankful, as Jim said, that you didn't give us a whipped cream gospel. But, but this is the meat. Now, this is the solid rock on which we can build our, our, our lives with the ups and downs, the emotional highs and lows that we experience uh, even our own sin and our own shortcomings and our own failures actually in the in the end it brings glory to you because you're able to use us despite ourselves and you're able to save us despite ourselves i think this is what blows the minds of the angels so much is how how on earth you can work with this stubborn sinful race where everything seems to be uh, it's almost like you you set up everything to to work against the possibility that anybody is saved, and yet you can overcome all of these impossible odds 
our own natural inclination to hate you, to run from you, uh, Satan and all his forces, uh, false doctrine in the world system, all of that around us. And yet you can you, you will call and preserve every single believer. And the inheritance that is ours in the saints will one day be sight. We will see it. And we will see you. We will dwell with you in eternity. And we thank you for this truth that we can rest in that you are sovereign, you are king, you are on the throne, and it is your doing and your glory. And we give that to you even today. Pray for your blessing on the service this morning and as well as uh, that afternoon. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.